Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the History Connection podcast. My name is Michael Musangu. I'm a student at the University of Portland studying biology and minoring in history. I just want to start off by, first of all, apologizing for not publishing an episode in about a month. I have been really sick since the publication of our last episode, and it really caused me to get off schedule because I got really sick for five weeks, and then I had to finish school, and I was really stressed with schooling, and scheduling to publish the podcast and everything just didn't work out. But I am back. It is now winter break, and I'm going to make sure that I publish a lot of episodes in advance this time, so I will not run into that problem next time. So today, without further ado, we're going to go into one of my favorite World War I heroes for this episode of Unsung Heroes, and his name is Alvin York. Before we start off that, let us start with some food for thought. This quote is by Nelson Mandela. He says that I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not one who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. Let me read that one more time. He says that I learned that courage was not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. The brave man is not he who does not feel afraid, but he who conquers that fear. I think when looking in today's episode and and what we're going to be discussing with what Alvin York did, we can definitely say that he achieved a lot of these qualities of that Nelson Mandela quote that we spoke of. Now, Alvin York himself was born in 1887 to a poverty-stricken family in in really the back rural Tennessee in uh, 1887, specifically the 13th of December. And he was the third of 11 children, so he really grew up in a big family, and he grew up really in a, in a small two-room cabin. So he really didn't have a lot growing up, but that said, he also was very unlearned as a, as a child because he had to help his father run the family farm and hunt for food, seeing as they had a huge family to take care of. He also learned how to become a great shooter and woodsman because his father was giving him all this practical life skills in place of his academic shortcomings, of course. But by 1911, his father had died. And it was at this point that Alvin York actually rejected his Christian upbringing that he had, and he started to become a strong drinker. This also forced him in this time period to have to start taking care of his mother and his younger siblings, being one of the oldest on the farm. Therefore, he was forced to take up responsibility and had to really grow up super fast. But he started to work on a railroad con- with a railroad construction company as a logger in Harriman, Tennessee. But regardless of this, he was still a strong drinker and he really had rejected his Christian upbringing. But his mother, who was really devout in her faith, really tried to get him to change his ways. But it was really one day, all of these things that I spoke of, of how his mother tried to help him and and tried to convince him to change his ways, it really didn't work. It was actually during one day that during a heavy night of drinking, he got into a fight with some of his friends in 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 the local saloon. And one of Alvin York's best friends since childhood, whose name was Everett Delk, got killed in this fight. And, and this really shook him because this was December of, um, this was really around winter of 1914. And 
when this, when the death of Everett really got to Alvin, it really shook him. And by, on the 1st of January, 1915, he went to a revival meeting that was being held by the revival minister, H.H. H. Russell, and he decided to give his life to Christ and become a Christian. And part of, in, 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 in part of becoming a Christian, he became a part of the Church of Christ in Christian Union, and he eventually came into contact with the girl that would eventually become his wife, Gracie Williams. While he, was all, while he was also going to church, he also became a Sunday school teacher and a singer in the local church choir. But all, the, all these aspirations of getting married and he started a nice little courtship with Gracie Williams and things started to look like they were heading up for him. He changed his life. He became a Christian, had a solid job and looks like everything was working out. On June 5th, 1917, he got a notice to register for the draft. And this created a huge dilemma for him because he was a patriot. He, he truly loved his country. He truly believed in the American ideals that he grew up with. The problem was he also believed that the government should be obeyed. So this actually created a crisis of conscience for him. And he really didn't know what to do. He actually writes in his diary that I wanted, and I quote, I wanted to follow both the Bible and the U.S. government, but I couldn't. I wanted to do what was right. If I went away to war and fought and killed, according to the reading of my Bible, I weren't a good Christian." Unquote. So, as a result, with the help of his pastor, he decided to apply for the status of conscientious objector. And when he did this, it took a couple weeks, but he got his request back and it was denied because his church was a part of a recognized Christian denomination. And in addition, uh, as a note, most of the conscientious objectors were actually still drafted, but they were just assigned to non-combat rules. In Alvin's case, he eventually had to go to New York in, 19, in November 1917. He was drafted into the U.S. Army, and though his conscientious, conscientious objector status was considered, he still had to go to basic training. He was assigned to Company G, 328th Infantry Regiment. 82nd Infantry Division, and was assigned to Camp Gordon in Georgia. Now, the what I like, like, like I mentioned before, Alvin was really a solid shooter, solid, great woodsman, and he proved to be a great shot. But again, he was seen as odd by all the other men in his unit because, again, he didn't want to fight. He also had extensive conversations with his company. Uh, company commander Captain Edward C. V. Danforth and Battalion Chief Ma uh, Chief Major G. Edward Buxton relating to the biblical justifications for war, and all this contention went back and forth, and realizing uh, I believe it was Captain Danforth realizing that he would actually make the right decision or make a decision that would help because he realized that he could be useful to the U.S. military in combat. He allowed him to have a 10-day leave of visit to go back home and to go wrestle these thoughts out through prayer in his own personal space where he can really get his mind off of everything and just think. So he goes home and really after this 10-day visit, he comes back with a firm belief that he was actually called to fight. And the way that he recognized this was when he was uh, scrolling through scriptures, actually. He came along one scripture that actually was in Matthew chapter 5, I believe, where it said, Blessed are the peacemakers. And that convinced him that as much as 
you know, fighting is not the best thing for him to do. He realized that if he fights, he's also a peacemaker in the process. And thus, this was really what convinced him to be called back and really fight for peace. So he traveled back to Boston and then he sailed to Le Havre in France in May 1918. And he arrived later that month after a quick stop in Britain. But upon reaching Europe, York's division spent a lot of time during, uh, doing a variety of uh, training exercises, most of which were really preparing him for the major battles along the Western Front. He was actually promoted to corporal during this time period, and he took part of the Saint-Michel offensive in which the 82nd, um, the 82nd Infantry, of course, sought to defend the U.S. 1st Army's right flank. And with a successful conclusion, conclusion of the fighting in that area, the 82nd then shifted to take a part of the Meuse-Argonne offensive. This is where Alvin York rose to stardom for all the work that he did in, or all the fighting that he did in World War I. Upon entering the fighting on October 7th to relieve units of the 28th Infantry Division, York's unit received orders that that evening that they were to advance and take Hill 223 and press on to cut off the the Decauville Railroad north of Châtel-Chehery. The next morning, they then advanced and took that hill. And in taking the hill, they were supposed to attack through a triangular-shaped valley that was actually really covered by machine gun fire from all, um, from several angles of an adjacent hill that was actually next to it. The Americans then started taking heavy casualties, and this started to slow their advance, actually. But in an effort to eliminate all these machine guns, 17 men, led by Sergeant Bernard Early, York included, were ordered to work around the rear of the adjacent hill and get behind the Germans in literally their own lines to literally take advantage of them. So basically what they did is that they took advantage of the brush and the hilly terrain and the troops slipped behind German lines and advanced up one of the opposite hills. And in doing so, they overran and captured a German headquarters area and actually secured a large number of prisoners, including an army major. Early's men began securing prisoners. And whilst this happened, some German gunners actually, um, they, that went up the slope, started opening fire. This killed six and wounded three men in York's little group. This left York in command of the remaining seven men. So now there's eight of them left. And with men behind, co uh, behind cover that were guarding the prisoners, York moved on to deal with the machine guns. And actually, what made this epic is, in order to deal with the machine gunners that were on the hill, he decided to use the skills and tactics that he had learned as a boy and essentially pick off the German guns from that were moving, um, decided to pick off the German guns by moving in a prone position, meaning he was moving on his stomach with his gun at guard, moving on his stomach, and then he would mo move up to a standing position. In fact, six German soldiers came and fired at him, charging with bayonets, and York dropped all of them with his pistol before they reached him. This is how skilled of a gunman he was. He then switched back to his rifle, dropping his pistol, and he returned to picking off the Germans. And he believed that he killed around 20 or so. 
before he called for surrender. He believed it was enough to actually convince them to surrender, realizing that they were losing a lot of troops. He was then aided by the captured major to order a, a ceasefire, essentially. Because the major obviously spoke German and Alvin York didn't speak German. Therefore, you know, he had to find some way to communicate. Therefore, he used the major to basically arrange a ceasefire. And by the time all that had transpired, the ceasefire had come into effect, Alvin York realized that upon rounding up all the prisoners, he had captured 100 Germans. And York started moving back towards the American lines, and by the time he had come, got back to headquarters, there were 132 prisoners that were delivered. During the course of the fight, he went on to retake the railroad by rejoining the unit that he was with and they went and advanced and took the railroad. 28 more Germans were killed, 35 machine guns were captured, and for his achievements, Alvin York was promoted to sergeant and was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. He then received the Medal of Honor on the 18th of April, 1919. He was then received in America with a huge parade in New York City in June, 1919. And, yes, he did eventually marry Gracie Williams. Over the next few years, the couple had ten children, eight of whom survived infancy. But after all this, and after all the major fighting that really made York the famous military sergeant that he was, he eventually took on speaking, to, um, speaking tours and eagerly sought to improve he eagerly sought to improve the educational opportunities for air, the children of his area in Tennessee. By 1926, the Alvin C. York Agricultural Institute was made, and it was then taken over by the state of Tennessee in 1937. In 1941, there was a movie that was eventually made by, about his life, and he also worked to found the Tennessee State Guard in 1941, serving as the colonel of the 7th Regiment, and became a spokesperson for the Freedom Committee. So yes, Alvin York did upgrade to Colonel. <laughs> but yes, he then, he then attempted actually to re-enlist um, in World War II as a soldier, but he was rejected due to his age and weight. But that said, he, all he played a major role in war bonding and inspection tours. After the war, he had a lot of financial problems, and by 1954, he had a stroke. And unfortunately, that stroke really debilitated him, and it really just destroyed who he was, because after those last 10 years, he really remained sickly. And by 1964, on September 2nd, he had passed away after a cerebral hemorrhage. But that said, this concludes the life of such a great soldier who stood on his principles, where he didn't really believe that killing anyone was right, but he also believed that in order to get, in order to maintain peace, he had to be a part of it. Alvin York, in going through, in, in having to go back to the American lines after he had captured all those German soldiers, actually had to go through American lines. So he had to risk getting shot by his by his own his own friends essentially he was at risk for friendly fire so to speak but that said alvin york had braved it all captured 132 germans but basically by himself 
even though there were eight of them left. I mean, eight against 132, it's hard to imagine that he would have won or he would have succeeded in that matter, but he did. And as a result, Alvin York remains in history as one of the most unsung heroes of World War I. I hope that this episode was very interesting for you to listen to. And until next time, I'm Michael Musangu. Thanks for listening to the History Connection Podcast.